a bit, but we will start our time together in Acts chapter 1. And as you turn there, let us go one more time to the Lord for a word of prayer as we declare our dependency on Him in all things, even as we desire for Him to continue to transform our hearts. Let us pray together. Father, what a blessed thing it is for us to be able to come and to sing even to reflect on this reality that what we hold in our hands is a word that has been passed down from generation to generation. That your word has been preserved by your divine providence. So that as much as those in the first century heard from the Lord Jesus Christ, so we too hear from you. This morning we do not proclaim a Word from men's own imagination, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried about by the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we have a trustworthy word. We have a word which declares the truth, a truth that we would not be able to know or see were it not for your word revealing it to us. We're so thankful for that truth. May it encourage our hearts. Lord, would you give us an extra measure of attention this morning as we give heed to your word. We're so thankful for it, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, last time we were together, we took some time to consider the next stage in God's plan of redemption, which is the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, we see God's authority clearly and certainly displayed in the return of Jesus Christ to this earth in the clouds, in the binding of Satan, and in the resurrection of God's people to rule with him for a thousand years. And we spent an extended time last week looking at the timing of the millennium. When does the millennial kingdom take place? And we determined that the millennial kingdom is in the future. It is yet to happen. And if you missed that sermon from last week, I would encourage you to go online to our Facebook page and watch it so that you have the first part of this two-part series. So last week, we determined the timing of the millennium, and this week we are going to look at the nature and purpose of the millennial kingdom. The nature and purpose of the millennial kingdom. Let's start our time out this morning by looking again at the definition of the millennial kingdom that we looked at last week. If you're following along in your bulletin insert, You can find it there. The millennial kingdom is God's final demonstration of his goodness and glory to the nations through the physical and visible rule of the resurrected Christ and his resurrected people for a thousand years before the new heavens and the new earth. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at three ways, three ways that the plan of redemption progresses 
or advances in the millennial kingdom. We're going to look at three ways that the display of Christ's glory as King of kings and Lord of lords is most evidently displayed in that time to come. And I want to do a little bit of comparing this morning by looking at what we now enjoy as recipients of the already kingdom, but what we not yet enjoy as we wait for and anticipate the millennial kingdom to come. And so this morning, the first way that the plan of God progresses in the millennial kingdom is this. Christ rules physically, Christ rules physically on earth compared to ruling spiritually in heaven. Christ rules physically on earth compared to ruling spiritually in heaven. How do we experience the rule of Christ now? Well, Christ is ruling and reigning in heaven as He ascended to the right hand of the Father and as He waits for that day when He will be revealed to make an enemy of His footstools. Or, yeah, a footstool of His enemies. You got it, even though I messed it up. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. When we think about the reign of Christ in this present church age, we believe that Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven in the hearts of his people through the Holy Spirit. And we see this in a number of places, but one of the places that we see it most clearly is in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. I encourage you to read along with me as we look at these passages. In verse 4, it begins like this. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water... But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you not at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. That is, he ascended into the heavens and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
What we see described for us in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, is the ascension of Christ. After Christ's physical resurrection, he appeared to many disciples. We see that in passages like 1 Corinthians 15. And then he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And he primarily exercises his kingly authority now through the Spirit in the church. Notice how Christ's ascension is connected to the sending of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We also see this connection in John chapter 16, verse 7, where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Christ ascended, and from his exalted position, he sent the power of the Holy Spirit to his people. And this exercise of authority grants power to God's people to live in line with God's gracious rule. Our ability, beloved, our ability to live as a demonstration of God's grace in this current age and to overcome its powers is directly connected to Christ ascending and to Him sending His spirits. We notice this in a passage like Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Let me read it for you, and you can find it in your bulletin insert. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Christ ascended. He is ruling and reigning in the heavens. And He sends His Spirit to exercise authority over the hearts of men. Even as we've seen so many weeks ago, when we looked at God's kingdom in the church. And he does so, beloved, so that we, his people, might be a demonstration of his kingdom to the nations around us. Again, we see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Look at it again. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We experience the reign of Christ 
through our union with Him by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, the people, the people of this age are exposed to the reign of Christ as it says, we are witnesses of Christ's kingly rule through this mysterious but powerful connection. The church is the primary realm in which we and the nations witness the authority of Christ as king exercised on his heavenly throne. Beloved, we are the demonstration of Christ's power and authority now. The transformation that has taken place in our hearts is a preview of that transformation that will take place in the millennial kingdom and ultimately in the age to come. And each step, whether it's the church age or the millennial kingdom next, each step is an advance of the glory of Christ to the nations around us. But this internal display is not how the rule of Christ will be demonstrated forever. One day, Christ will return. And He will rule the nations with an iron fist. One day, Christ will return and His kingly authority will be physically and visibly demonstrated on this terrestrial ball, as the old hymn says. And the nations in that day will have a first-hand account of the glory of Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of of lords. And we saw this last week when we looked at Revelation chapter 19, 20, and 1 Corinthians 15. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you turn there, let me just remind you of the passages in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. Revelation 19.15 says this, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In 1 Corinthians 15, we saw expressly when this reign takes place. Notice with me, verse 22 says this, 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, describing what we've just read in Revelation 19 and 20, at his coming, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I think it's important for us to come back to this passage so that we can see that what Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians 15 is different than the reign that we currently experience in the ascension of Jesus Christ. Notice that this reign is not prior to Christ's return. It is after Christ's return to earth. Again, notice the sequence of events in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Christ at His coming, the saints are resurrected. Even as we saw in Revelation 20 verse 4. Then comes the end. Now there are some grammatical details that we have to consider in order to fully understand what is happening in this passage. When does the end come? What we notice here in this text is that there are two temporal adverbs. That is, adverbs that are telling us the timing of the end. They're telling us when the end comes uh, to be. Notice in your bulletin inserts, I've tried to further clarify how those adverbs are describing the end. Notice in your insert, it says this, then comes the end, we have the first adverb, when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, we have the second adverb, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for, explanatory conjunction, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. There are two things in this text, in 1 Corinthians 15, there are two things that are directly connected to the end coming. The first is that the end will come, and when the end comes, Christ will deliver the kingdom to the Father. The second is the end comes after Christ destroys every rule and every authority and power. The four at the beginning of verse 25 is further describing what the destroying of every rule and authority looks like. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. This is the same idea that we find in Revelation 20 verse 4. For they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
And so what the two temporal adverbs do is show us what must take place before the end can come. Christ must deliver the kingdom over to the Father. But this can't take place until he destroys every rule and every authority and power. But that can't take place until he reigns and puts all of his enemies under his feet. And this happens after Christ returns and after the saints are resurrected. This reigning with Christ is a further demonstration of Christ's glory and God's goodness to his people. And this glory and goodness is paraded in front of all of the nations in the millennial kingdom in order that they might know and embrace the kingdom of God and his plan of redemption for all who believe. And so what we find here is that the reign of Christ in the millennium progresses from a spiritual reign in the hearts of his people to a physical reign over all the people of the earth. Now, Christ guides the actions of his people through the Holy Spirit. Then, he will guide the actions of all people with a loving but firm rod of iron. But that is not the only way that the millennial kingdom progresses. Not only does Christ physically reign with his people, but Satan is removed from his influence on the nations. The second way that we see the plan of God in the millennial kingdom advance is this. Satan is removed, if you're filling in your blank and your insert, Satan is removed to the bottomless pit compared to being restrained. Satan is removed in the bottomless pit compared to being restrained. What do we know about Satan in this current administration of God's plan for redemption? Well, we know a few things that we take directly from Scripture. We know that Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers, right? We read that directly from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where it says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so what we know about Satan's activity now is that he is blinding the minds of the unbelievers. We also know that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion ready to devour. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, 
where Peter says to the church, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We also know that Satan seeks to orchestrate a direct assault against God's people. Again, we read that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 11, where it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so it would seem that Satan is still exercising his power and authority, although in a very limited capacity, to advance his kingdom in this world. And the agenda of his kingdom is to keep the nations from seeing the gospel. It is to attack God's kingdom people in order that he might do away with their kingdom witness. Now where do we see this influence more clear than in Revelation chapter 19 verse 20? Turn with me if you're not there yet to Revelation chapter 19 verse 20. Revelation 19 verse 20 says this, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. At the end of time, we see the climax of Satan's agenda as he deceives the nations into thinking that they can assault the Lord's people and start a fight that they cannot finish. And so what we see in Revelation chapter 20 verse 3 is a direct address of this deception. Look at it in Revelation 20, verse 3. It says this, Also I saw an angel at the beginning of verse 1, and he seized the dragon, verse 3, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. In Revelation chapter 19 verse 20, we see Satan deceiving the nations. In Revelation chapter 20 verse 3, Satan is expressly prohibited from deceiving the nations. Now that's not to say that Satan hasn't been restrained in the church age. We know from 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, 
and Mark chapter 3, verses 23 through 27, that Satan's power has been broken and he has been restrained. But beloved, he has not been absolutely removed like he will be in the millennial kingdom. And we notice this absolute removal from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Look at that again with me. It says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. What we must take notice of in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 is the absolute nature in which John describes this removal of Satan's influence during the millennium. Satan here in Revelation 20 is seized by an angel who has much more power than he does. And he is Bound by this great chain. But not only that, not only is he seized and is he bound by a great chain, but he's also thrown into a bottomless pit. And not only this, but he's also thrown into the pit and the pit is shut and sealed over him. Now, of course, this is metaphorical language. A spiritual being can't be chained with a physical chain or contained within a physical pit. And so the question that we must ask ourselves is why is the language so demonstrative in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3? And I think the reason it's so explicit is because it is describing the absolute removal of Satan. Not the restraining of Satan, but the absolute removal of Satan's influence during the millennial kingdom. It is showing us the extent to which Jesus' authority will expand over the earth during the millennial. Satan is not merely bound. Satan is removed from his influence altogether. Beloved, in that kingdom, there is no more blinding. There is no more prowling. There is no more deceiving. There is no more riling up the nations to oppose the Christ and his people. Satan is completely removed from the scene for the duration of the millennial kingdom. And so again, we see that the plan of God for redemption advances in that kingdom. 
that the progress of God's plan for the defeat of Satan is taken one step further in the millennium. He is absolutely, hear this, in that day, he is absolutely removed from his devilish influence on the nations. But Satan is, Satan's judgment is not complete. Not until the end of the millennium when Satan is released for a little while, but then he is done away with for good in the lake of fire in which the beast and the false prophet were previously thrown and to which Satan now joins them. And so we see the progress of God's plan of redemption in the millennial kingdom. Christ will physically reign instead of spiritually reigning now. Satan will be entirely removed instead of being restrained now. But there's a third way. There's a third way that the plan of God for redemption progresses or advances in the millennial kingdom. And this is it. God's people are physically resurrected compared to being spiritually regenerated. God's people are physically resurrected compared to being spiritually regenerated. One thing that we have learned from the progression of God's plan in redemption is His desire to reveal to the nations the glory of Jesus Christ the Son. And He has done that progressively over the course of human history. From the first promise of a Redeemer in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, which says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From that initial promise through Noah and through David and through Moses and even through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, history marches at the beat of the drum of the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what we have seen is that in the millennial kingdom, Jesus Christ's glory is expressly demonstrated through his manifest reign and his absolute binding of Satan. But there is one final way that God reveals his glory to the nations through the person and work of Christ. And it's his work on behalf of his people. We, those who believe and trust in Christ, will be physically resurrected alongside our Savior. And we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. In the church age, God's people are brought to life spiritually. And the evidence for this work of redemption is a transformation of the inner man. But in the millennial kingdom, God's people are brought to life physically. And the evidence for this work of redemption is an 
external transformation. Bringing the redemption of God's people to completion as both the inner and the outer man are renewed. We've seen this in many places. Look, if you're still in Revelation chapter 20, to verse 4. It says this, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What we are anticipating, beloved, is a time in which we will be physically resurrected, and we will live alongside of those who have not yet enjoyed that physical resurrection. Now let me address briefly one objection to this line of thinking. And the objection goes like this. Doesn't it seem strange to imagine a world where both resurrected and unresurrected people coexist? You mean to tell me that in the millennial kingdom there will be people who will live unaffected by disease and death alongside of people who are continuing to suffer from the effects of the curse of sin? And my response to that objection is absolutely yes. That is what is going to happen because that is what is declared in the Bible. But I don't think, and hear this, I don't think that that is any more strange than a serpent delivering a temptation to our first parents. I don't think that that is any more strange than a worldwide flood that judged the wickedness of creation. I don't think that that is any more strange than the slaying of a giant by a teenage boy with a sling or, and a stone, or the parting of the Red Sea, or a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to direct God's people in the wilderness, or even the holy and eternal Son of God manifesting Himself in human flesh. Or the spiritual regeneration of God's people so that spiritually alive people live alongside spiritually dead people. Answer me this. How is the millennial kingdom any more extraordinary than the previous administrations of God's grace and God's glory? And the answer, my brothers and sisters, is that it is not. If God desires to glorify himself through a talking serpent, then God will most certainly glorify himself through resurrected people living alongside unresurrected people. And why does God advance his plan for redemption in this way? We see it 
in Joshua chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. You can find it in the insert in your bulletin. Why does God manifest His glory in such extraordinary and peculiar ways? It says this in Joshua chapter 4. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which He dried up for us until we passed over it, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Brothers and sisters, the millennial kingdom is just one more step in revealing the glory of God and His sovereignty over all things. His sovereignty over the nations. His sovereignty over Satan. And His sovereignty over physical death and hell. In that day, all the world will see Christ's glory manifest. And for that day, we ought to rejoice. We ought to long for that day when Christ returns and He reveals His glory to the nations. And that day will happen in the millennial kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for this truth. Father, may we live in light of it. May we take those promises which are given to us in 1 Corinthians 15 and in the Gospels and in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Even what we know about the age to come in Revelation chapter 21. Lord, may we take those promises and may we as your people live in light of them. May we now be a demonstration of that glory which is to come. And may we proclaim to the nations through our transformed hearts that you are good and glorious. And may all the people who live and interact with us who do not know your glory yet, may they all see and behold your goodness through us. We're so thankful for this truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.